Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. If you were paying attention to the news about the COVID-19 pandemic in New York City, you'll remember that two Army field hospitals deployed to provide support to the beleaguered healthcare system there. Today's guest is Lieutenant Colonel Jared McGee, commander of the 11th Field Hospital. In this podcast, we discuss what a field hospital is, what its capabilities are, and what it's like to move one from Fort Hood, Texas to New York City with only a few days' notice. This interview focuses mostly on the logistics of the movement to give listeners a sense of what it takes to accomplish something this complex and make it look easy. In the full-length version of the interview, we follow the discussion of the 11th Field Hospital's mission with a discussion of Lieutenant Colonel McGee's career. He started out in the Army as a combat engineer, running around the woods and blowing things up, as he said, to later getting a commission as an Army Medical Service Corps officer and becoming a health services comptroller. So he has had a varied and interesting career. He is also the Army Regent for the American College of Healthcare Executives, so we talk about the importance of professional organizations and how his ACHE contacts actually helped provide him intelligence as he brought his unit into New York. We conclude with a discussion about leadership. I hope you enjoyed this interview with my friend and former student, Lieutenant Colonel McGee. And if you do, won't you please leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you might be listening to this recording. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. And here is Lieutenant Colonel Jared McGee. Welcome to the podcast, Colonel McGee. Thanks. It's good to be here. So you recently completed an unusual uh, deployment leading the 11th Field Hospital to participate in providing support to the city of New York in the Javits Center. So people probably saw this on the news, kind of made national news all over the place. But before we kind of get into that, to the actual experience, I'd, I'd like to, for the audience, to talk a little bit about uh, the unit that you lead and get a, get a little bit of background on, on what, that, what that is. So what is a field hospital? So well, first of all, let me let me uh, let me just kind of open with this real fast. Uh, just keep everything on the uh, on the right side of legal for me. Uh, anything I say, not views of the army, right? My own my own opinion. Uh, and and uh, if I speak of a, any individual organization, I am in no way of endorsing that uh, that organization. All right, just using them in name. Uh, so thank you. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so, so a field hospital. The the best way to think about it for for your listeners would be uh, picture a, a hospital that you have in any one of your cities. So an acute, say like an acute care and trauma hospital. That's what we are. We are a modular 148 bed acute care and trauma hospital. The only difference with us is this 148 bed acute care and trauma hospital. We can box up and load onto trucks or trains or boats and ship it anywhere in the world at any time. So when you say acute care hospital, like what capabilities do you have? What kind of treatment can you do when that hospital is fully set up? So just like your local hospital, we can do everything from uh, primary care and physical therapy, social work services, behavior, uh, the full complement of behavioral health 
all the way up to emergency medicine, uh, neurosurgery, CT surgery, you name it. Then, of course, the, the full complement that goes along with that. You know, I have full complement of ICU nurses and ICW nurses, medics, all the ancillaries that go along with it. We have uh, full pharmacy. We have full lab, uh, radiology capabilities, um, everything you would find down the road. Uh, but the difference is, is we're self-contained. We have to provide all, our, uh, all of our own power and water and food and <laughs> all that internally. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of amazing. And, and so you, you say you, you put it in boxes and send it someplace. How long does it take you typically, if you were to take that, the hospital, the full 148 bed uh, unit and out into a field environment, how long does it take you to normally set up to full capacity? So well, number one, we're, we're always ready, right? So, so we're always packed and ready to go. We can deploy anywhere in the world as fast as we can get our stuff loaded onto, onto vehicles to move out of Fort Hood. It takes a, a big team effort from, from a whole lot of folks back here and a whole lot of folks on the receiving end. But yeah, we can get out the door and as quick as we can load vehicles. So let's say you're you're loaded and your your all your boxes have been put down and wherever it is you're going to be. When would you be ready to take patients? Uh, we actually just did a validation exercise uh, not too long ago. By doctrine, we should be 100% ready to go in 72 hours. But okay. we beat that we beat that by about 35 or so percent. Uh, we had full ED oh. complement set up, ready to go in less than 18 hours, and uh, we were fully mission capable not long after that. That's pretty amazing. So, so from from boxes on the ground to 148 bed facility, ready to take patients in less than you said 18 hours for for ED capability, and then and then sounds like less than two days for for full full on capability. And that's assuming you're going to provide your own power, your own water, and all that as well. Like, that's that's kind of amazing. Seeing everybody get to work on it is nothing. It, it's it, the, the coordination that it takes, uh, everything from, you know, imagine building a building. You know, they, they have to start with staking out the land to figure out the dimensions of the hospital where each individual tent is going to go. To having everything up, including lights and water, uh, it's a uh, it's a dance that we really we should we should time lapse it just so everybody can see you know what it looks like with yeah. people running everywhere and forklifts and tents and you know trucks and it's it's a sight to behold for sure. So 148 beds. How many uh, how many people are we talking about when the unit is is 100% staffed? Um, just over 300, just over 300 people in, in just the, uh, the field hospital. And you say just the field hospital. So what do you, what else could there be around, around you then? We fall under something called a, a hospital center and a, a hospital center. Uh, you can think of it like a, a 26 person or so command and control, uh, node. So for, for your listeners, think of that as like a regional, a region, maybe a, a regional headquarters, um, a regional C-suite uh, where you have a, a CEO and a COO and, and a chief nurse and a chief doc, uh, and then the administrative staff uh, up there to support. And then underneath that, you also have my organization, the field hospital, 
which has its own C-suite. But then you also have some outlying clinics that fall underneath that hospital center as well. For example, our hospital center here, the Ninth Hospital Center under the command of Colonel Dave Hamilton, has two forward resuscitative surgical teams, a behavioral health attachment, and a veterinary surgical services attachment. So our hospital, then working in conjunction with them, we could we won't all be co-located, but if we were, now that organization balloons to over 500 people. Okay. Is there another, is there, are there two field hospitals under the hospital center? Is that, or is it just one? There is only one, but, um, but the, uh, by design, the hospital center can provide command and control or that, the, whether you want to call it mission command or command and control or uh, C-suite uh, oversight of two field hospitals. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. I, this is this is relatively new doctrine, so I, I, it's come into play since after I after I retired from the army. So I'm I'm, uh-huh. I'm learning as we talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So so you said three hundred or so people actually assigned to your organization, and then we talked a little bit about the hospital center and some of these other organizations that roll up under the hospital center. So thinking of your organization, thinking of the field hospital and the 300 people you have there, the model as, as it was back, back, in the, back in the day when I was involved and in, uh, uh, still in the Army, um, we, had a, we called it a PROFIS model, a professional filler system model, where if you were assigned to a field hospital, for example, you would, you would spend most of your days working in a, in a, in a, in a fixed facility, a, a, a brick and mortar building hospital, and you would get pulled over to the field hospital when the field hospital uh, went on a big exercise or, or actually got called up to deploy. Is that still the model with the field hospital or how has that changed? So it, it's, it's similar. Um, so I still have, I have organic staff here at the, the field hospital, but then we also have like, like the, the profit system, the professional filler system that you were just talking about. Um, we have something similar. I, you know, we still have a bunch of, of docs and nurses, you know, around the world uh, working in different uh, military medical treatment facilities. The difference is now are, are those, those providers are actually assigned to us. So if, if the call goes up that, uh, I remember I mentioned that we were modular. Um, if, if the call goes up that, we need to deploy either a certain module of like say just the icw of of the hospital i want to deploy 60 beds someplace which we actually did recently the call goes up for those people assigned to that 60 bed detachment those people show up and it's the same people that you know since they're assigned to us so those providers and nurses, they, they come, they fall in with the same teams they're used to training with. They fall in on the same equipment that they're used to training with. And then the only difference is, is the location that they may end up serving. So that's, uh, that's how the, uh, the new model is a little different. So you mentioned that you have docs and nurses who are, who are assigned to the field hospital, but, but when the field hospital is not actively engaged in an exercise or a deployment, they're working at a, at a, at a, you know, like I said, a, a fixed facility. So you're at Fort Hood. So I could imagine they probably work at the hospital at Fort Hood when they're not with you. What's the idea behind that? Uh, why aren't they just full-time assigned to you so that, you know, you could 
You could just take them and go. So I, uh, I can actually uh, expand on that a little bit there. Yeah, we're at hood, but not all of my folks are at hood with us. You know, I've got folks down okay. in San Antonio. I've got a, uh, let's see, our CT surgeon, I think he's out of uh, Tripler right now, out of Hawaii. Um, so, okay. <laughs> right. so Hawaii. All right. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the idea behind it is for, for our providers to maintain those clinical skill sets that they have to have to use in wartime, they get those, they get those skills and maintain those skills in our, in our fixed facilities. So they stay there and they provide services to the beneficiary population there. But then when it's time uh, for deployment, we call them back and they go with us. So you talked a minute ago about, about the field hospital itself is modular. And you mentioned you had like a 60 bed. So the whole hospital is 148 beds when it's in its full, its full capacity. What kind of arrangements? So you mentioned a 60 bed, you could, you could push out a 60 bed subunit. Like what are the what what are the examples of of the different arrangements that you could potentially deploy without um, deploying the whole organization? Uh, so we have a full capability thirty two bed uh, component uh, that can uh, push out emergency medicine, uh, OR capability, and recovery in ICU and ICW, along with ancillaries. Uh, we could push that 32-bed early entry capability all on its own. That's our, our headquarters, what we call a headquarters and headquarters uh, company. Uh, they can go out all on their own. We have a 60-bed uh, ICW that I spoke about earlier that we actually, you know, funny enough, we actually deployed it not too long ago. They picked up and went to the National Training Center in California. And uh, as an example of modularity, got plugged in to one of our sister field hospitals to do a training exercise down there. So, so you can, uh, we have that detachment. Uh, we have a medical augmentation detachment that'll provide dentistry and psychology and physical therapy services. And then we also have a surgical services, a medical augmentation detachment that provides another OR suite and, and those capabilities as well, the recovery capabilities, ICW and ICU. And then we also have a head and neck uh, surgical detachment as well on top of that. Wow. So all these things could, so it sounds like they could deploy by themselves and, and, and get a, they could be carved off from your organization and attached to like another, like you said, another field hospital or maybe some other medical unit. Exactly. They can go in support of somebody else if they have to. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the organization, its remarkable capabilities, so I'd like to talk a little bit about your recent deployment up to New York City, uh, uh, of all places. You know, I can't uh, uh, I imagine you probably never thought you'd, you'd get orders to go to to New York City uh, in your in your current role when you took over. <laughs> it's funny. It was my it was my first time in New York City. That's one way to there. Yeah, that's one way to see it. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, so you're a healthcare leader. You've been in, you'd been in, in command for a year. Is that correct? One year last month. We actually, we actually had our, our, our first birthday for the ninth hospital center uh, and the 11th field hospital in the Javits center uh, in New York city on April 16th. Okay. So, yeah. so it's a brand new unit as well. That's, that's it great. It is. So, uh, I mean, as a healthcare leader, I imagine you were monitoring this, uh, the crisis closely. At what point, well, when did you really 
you know, as a leader, when did you become aware of the pandemic and when did you get, and what was your first kind of, uh, when was it first discussed with you that your unit might be uh, called on to go provide service there? Yeah, as uh, you know, in, in healthcare, I'm sure, you know, with you and, and, and all of your students and, and all, all of your listeners, um, people, people were paying attention to the, to the, to the news started seeing, you know, oh, this, this virus seems to be spreading pretty quickly across, uh, across China. And, oh, well, look at that, across the borders. Oh, look, it's starting to expand a little bit more. Um, and I think it was about the middle of January or so, if memory serves, that, uh, that it was declared a public health emergency of international concern because it was crossing those borders. Um, so at that point, we started doing a bunch of research on, okay, what does it mean to get, to get this disease? Uh, what, what does that do to a patient? Uh, and then as as the, we started getting those reports, you know, we would start sharing them with our providers across the across the world um, and talking about it internally. Just kind of kind of getting our, our head around it. Um, OK, should it should it come to us? What is it that we're going to have to do? What is it that we're going to have to be ready for uh, to take care of those folks? And then we actually got I think it was around March 18th. Uh, we got notified of a potential deployment. And those locations uh, were, were either East Coast or West Coast. So we were thinking, okay, maybe Seattle or New York, uh, maybe somewhere in California. And then at that point, we really started that, that planning. Okay, what would it look like for us to go ahead and, and pick up uh, and move out uh, to one of these places? And then uh, the, the next day, the warning order actually came. So, so we, ended up, we ended up getting the, the, the warning order less than 24 hours after we were notified of a potential deployment. What okay, so I, I know this terminology, but let's let's talk a little bit about what does that mean? A warning order. What do, what does a warning order mean in the military? So that that says, okay, you're gonna go, you're gonna do something, right? You're gonna do something. So so get get all of your stuff in order and get ready to go. That's that's what that means. It's a you can maybe call it a a heads up. Like somebody walks into your office and they're like, hey, heads up. This is getting ready to happen. <laughs> All right. So it's a very formal heads up. Very formal heads up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's probably the but, best way. And, and that, yeah. But at that point, uh, and, and, and the purpose of that is because not all the logistics have been worked out yet, not all the decisions have been made about the details of whatever's going to happen, but to kind of make sure people are starting to prepare to, to do something. It's going to, it's hopefully going to give you that, that kind of the situation, the mission, some, maybe some uh, command and signal stuff, some service and support. It's going to hopefully throw out the five W's for you. The, the who, what, when, where, why, uh, not necessarily the how, but, but at least get you started. Okay. So we're in the middle of March, March 9th, 18th, 19th. You're getting some formal, you've now gotten some formal notification. Yes, this is, mm -hmm. uh, this is going to happen. So what's the, what, what do you start doing when you get that warning order as the commander of, of a field hospital, you've been alerted through the warning order. What are the first things you start doing to prepare your unit for this, this mission? So like I said before, you know, we're always, we're always packed and ready to go. So at that point, it's really just a matter of coordinating all of our support agencies so that they can start picking us up and getting ready to, to move us wherever it is that we need to be. Uh, whether it's going to be on trucks or trains or boats to to get us to our destination, um, and then that goes along. That's just the equipment side of it, right? So that's 
in the in the grand scheme of things, that's that's relatively relatively simple. The biggest thing that you want to take care of is all of the medical and administrative processing for your soldiers, right? For the staff, um, and that's everything from making sure that everybody's medically ready to go. We'll say something like everybody's got 90 days of medications on hand if they have allergies or or something like that. To making sure that everybody's wills are up to date and their powers of attorney are set, you know, so that their families can be taken care of uh, back here, you know, you know, mom and dad back here or husband and wife can take care of uh, the family with, you know, certain legal actions if they have to, you know, all, all of those things. Uh, those are those are all the pieces that you put in motion. The other the other thing is, is just all the uh, locking in all the internal planning. Okay. All, all the concerns. Do we have all the, do we have all of our supplies on hand that we've asked for? Is it all loaded and ready to go? Those, all of those pieces and parts. That's, that's the process put in place. So at what point did you, you know, get the details of where you were going and, and what you were going to do and who you would be working with? Yeah. So uh, we got the, uh, so we got the notice on the uh, on the 19th that that real formal heads up the the warning order, and then it was on the 24th uh, that the deployment order came uh, down. Said, all right, hey, you're going to go to New York City, and we actually launched our advance party early the very next day on the 25th. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So so the you know we get the we get the formal heads up. Something that goes along with that, like I said, is is making sure everybody's stuff is ready to go. Uh, so then when we got the the actual deployment order, the very next day, those people are ready to go now. They get on the plane and uh, and they took off to New York City. Uh, they actually stopped en route and picked up a second field hospital's advance party uh, in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, picked those folks up, and then they continued on to, to New York City. Uh, then we ended up pushing out our main body. The, the, the biggest part of the force. We pushed all of our medical folks early. The main body deployed just one day after them on, on the 26th. So what, how was the mission described to you? Like, what were you told? This is what you're, you're, you're going to New York City. What were you told you were going to do? So we knew we were going to New York City. And we knew we were going to provide um, a relief valve uh, to the local hospitals in New York City, but we did not know what that was going to look like. We didn't know if we were going to be, you know, operating out of uh, operating a shelter like what was initially started at the Javits Center, or if we were going to be setting up, you know, our field hospital. And I mentioned we picked up uh, that other field hospital on the way. Uh, we didn't know if we were going to set ours up and then they were going to set theirs up someplace else what those locations may be. We, all we knew is we were going there to provide relief to the hospitals of New York City. That's, that's what we knew. A lot of the, the planning was actually taking place on the aircraft uh, on the way there. Wow, okay. <laughs> we, have a, uh, we have a great picture of, of, um, of three of our, of our principal staff folks uh, a guy named uh, uh, Major Pete Kirkendall, uh, Chief Polite, who's our engineer, takes care of setting up all that power and water stuff that we were talking about. And then Sorry. one of our one of our critical care doctors, uh, a guy named Major Sean Shirley, we got this great picture of them um, huddled around a, a map uh, and a computer on the airplane, figuring out where they could set the hospital down. You know, in the middle of Wall Street, you know, on a pier, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, that's what we 
Wow. So you were on your way, you sent your advance. So that, that was the advance party you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, I assume. It was. So, um, so how many people went, you know, in the advance party, uh, and you said they picked up with another field hospital. So how many people were you sending in that advance party? Uh, roughly. I want to say we had about, I, w- I want to say we had about 25, 26 people in that advance party. Uh, I may be off, you know, plus or minus a few. Uh, but the okay. purpose of the okay. purpose of the folks is to uh, is to to get you know get there in advance, um, hence the name, uh, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and and then set conditions for the arrival of the main body. Uh, so they start getting okay. all the logistics in place. You know where are people going to sleep, where are they going to eat, you know things like that. And those are all. I mean, they sound they sound mundane questions, but I mean you're showing up in the middle of a pandemic in a big city. Those are not insignificant issues, right? You can't, you can't do the mission if you don't have places where people can eat and sleep. It is a highly, it's a highly complex mission for the advanced party because, you know, when I say finding out, you know, setting conditions for people to arrive, that's not just uh, where people are going to eat and sleep for sure, right? That's all right, where are we going to set up the hospital? What kind of patients are we expecting to see? Uh, What's that volume going to look like? How are we going to get our supplies? How, who do we link in with to, to make sure we get resupply when we need it? All right. What about food? What about, um, what about fuel for, for all of our equipment? You know, they set, they set up all of that. How are we going to get patients in? How are we going to get patients back out when it's time to get them out of here? Those are all things that the advanced party starts working through on the way. And oh. when they get, there. yeah, it's really complex. So they're, they're arriving or they're on the plane making these plans. At what point did you get told, yes, you are going to be in the Javits Center? And how did that, and how did that uh, change your planning process? So when we actually, uh, we, we found out uh, when the main body, when the main body was en route, we knew we were going to start at the Javits Center. Um, that, that wasn't to say that we were going to stay in the Javits Center the whole time. Um, but we knew we were going to start setting up and staffing in the Javits Center. Um, but we still didn't know exactly what that was going to look like because the mission did evolve from day one till, till we, re- we redeployed. Uh, the mission, you know, kept, kept kind of evolving as the, uh, the conditions on the ground uh, changed. So we knew that we were going to go in and, and operate uh, in the Javits Center. But initially, it was kind of set up like you would expect to see a, a shelter. Um, you know, with the, uh, the FEMA, with the FEMA setup, like something, something akin to maybe following a hurricane or a natural disaster. That's kind of what you would, uh, you would expect um, to see. And that's, that's really what we started falling in on. Then of course, then that, that evolved uh, from there. So, so you, you started falling in on the Javits Center. So what was the, what was your understanding as you arrived? And, and you said the mission involved. So what were you told, okay, go ahead and set this capability up. Um, and, you know, and, and then how did it, how did it change over time while you were there? So we were there in support of federal and, and state agencies like FEMA, U.S. Public Health Service. Uh, and the state of New York. So we were there to provide support to them. So it, it started, like I said, with, um, we, we had something called inclusion and exclusion criteria. People who knew uh, uh, patients, acuity of patients that you'll allow into the facility um, and then people who we weren't gonna allow into the facility. And that actually started out pretty pretty strict. But then as, as um, you start seeing the demand signal from local hospitals, 
change to say, hey, we need to we need to uh, discharge people that are that may be COVID convalescing patients, uh, people who still need, let's say, and and I'm not a provider by by any measure. Say say we have people who need say six liters or so of oxygen still. They're not necessarily out of the dark, but they're definitely recovering. These are the people that we need to get into the Javits Center so that they can free up, they being the local hospitals, can free up more uh, ICU space. So then our mission set started evolving, right? We started, we started then taking those, uh, those patients with higher acuity. Um, and then once we saw that uh, we needed to bring in some patients with even a little higher acuity above that, it kind of evolved again. And we set up our own ICUs uh, within the Javits Center with with all the things that you hear about, like you know ventilators and monitors and and, and stuff like that. That's how it evolved from from day one and, until uh, about the middle of the middle of April is when we hit uh, peak capacity or peak census, or other I should say, uh, at the Javits Center. And all that happened okay. over the all that happened over the course of about two weeks. Uh, we went from two patients. Uh, to our our greatest census was over 450 people. I think I think we made that move from two to 450 in about 12 days or so. Wow! So you you so what were the assets on the ground? You mentioned FEMA had kind of started setting it up in the center. Um, were there other providers? Other other in in the facility already were there other medical units in you know of of from the state or from uh or were you guys the the providers of of care no we 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 did not do this alone uh this was a this was a whole of government approach uh to attacking a crisis so you had civilian agencies in support you had us public health service which is another uniformed service okay uh, there in support you had uh, reservists got activated. You had the Navy there. The Air Force was there. Um, National Guard was was there. Uh, you know, uh, in full force. Uh, you know, working. It was like I said, we weren't the only ones. It was a whole government yeah. approach and a giant team effort. Yeah. So how did you? So talk about that team and how that all was managed. And I realize you probably weren't in, you were not in charge of the whole thing, obviously. Um, Clearly. Uh, well, maybe not obviously to, I know. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but so like, how did you, so how did you fit into that, that process? How was that process managed? And, and let me see, how did you fit into that whole process? Let me put it that way. So we brought, uh, you know, the, all the medical capabilities to bear that, that we've already we've already spoke of. Um, and then there was also another field hospital there um, out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, like I mentioned. Uh, those folks actually fall under our sister brigade, which is the 44th Medical Brigade, uh, and they come out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So uh, the 44th Med Brigade um, commander, uh, Colonel Kim Aiello, she commanded the entire um, task force. Uh, which we uh, we named uh, Task Force Silver Dragon. Uh, so that was uh, that was great because we had two we had two different medical brigades. You had the Silver Knight First Med Brigade commanded by Colonel Rob Howe, and then the Dragon Medics out of the 44th Medical Brigade out of uh, Fort Bragg commanded by Colonel Aiello. Uh, both combined together, so we named it Task Force Silver Dragon. So uh, the 44th Med Brigade commander was the uh, was the Task Force commander. And we were placed uh, under her. 
So we operated in support of all those other agencies under her mission command. So was she, so you mentioned a whole bunch of other age, other government agencies, were they all under Colonel Iola? I don't know. Um, so everybody was there in support under, under the, uh, uh, under the, uh, the guidance of, of FEMA health and human services, uh, okay. and then in, in cooperation. So with the, the state of New York, right. So that, okay. yeah. So that was, that was their, their big operation. Okay. So she oversaw the, the army component, the two, the, uh, the two field hospitals as well as what else? So what else kind of, as, as well as the other, or, um, the other organizations that I spoke of. So we ended up getting, uh, Navy assets, uh, and reserve assets as well. Um, and then those folks, and so those folks ended up working in both the Javits center and in, in, in local hospitals, uh, in New York city. And to make her job even more complex, uh, she was the task force commander for the entire the entire eastern seaboard from uh, I think it was Maine to to Florida, so all those all those other regions. So wow. yeah, so she uh, she was mission commanding uh, folks going out and setting up alternate care facilities in in multiple other cities in in Jersey and um, and Philly. So what shaped your decisions or the or the Overall, not your per se, but the decisions, the policy decisions as to uh, what kind of patients were going to be allowed in, how long were they going to be kept there? You kind of talked about you went from two to four hundred and fifty. So clearly, there were just, there were changes over that period of time about who 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 you would take care of and for how long. I assume, right? So how how so what did that look like? How did it change over time? So the 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 driving factor there was was simply the demand signal. We needed to provide the we needed to provide the supply, right? That that the local hospitals needed. They need if they need to free up ICU space, then we need to take some of their recovering patients so that they can focus on those more acute patients. That's what drove it. So you were up to a census of 450. So you had, at one point, you had a, 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 as many as 450 patients in under your care. At what point did the did the uh, census start to drop, and what was driving that? So um, our peak census, I believe, was 453. That was that was the high point, and that all happened around 15 April or so. After that, um, we started to see the census drop. And if you compare that with kind of the curve you would see in, in New York, it follows that a couple of days, right? Which, which makes perfect sense. Uh, you, have, you have fewer people coming into the hospitals. They're able to decompress, right? So they're able to treat more of their folks, less people then coming to us, which means then our intake is going to start falling off uh, while our discharges continue. We expect to see that number come down. And that's exactly what happened. As a leader, Going into this situation, what were your main concerns? What were your uh, uh, going in, and, and how did that change over time? So my two my two principal concerns uh, rolling rolling into this um, were were people based. Number one, what's going to happen to the uh, what's going to take place with the families back here? Because, like I said, if if soldiers or you know sailors or airmen for that matter. If they can't focus on the job at hand because they're worried about the family back here, 
then they're going to be less effective. So that's that's one of the principal concerns is have we done everything that we can to make sure families are taken care of back here? Do we have the support structure in place back here to make sure those folks are taken care of? Um, and then the second concern are for those people that we were taking forward. So, and that, that covers everything from force health protection. Like I was, I was never concerned over, you know, are, are our folks going to have, you know, things like the protective equipment required. Uh, I was never concerned about that because I knew, I knew we had, um, I was never concerned over anything like, will they have the discipline to wear you know, to wear the PPE properly at all times. You know, I was, I was never concerned over those things. My big concerns were, okay, at what point are we going to, uh, at what point are we going to start overstressing that, that force? Are they, are we going to be able to give them appropriate work rest cycles? Are we going to be able to get them some type of, of step away time from the floor to let them recover? you know, for, you know, whatever that period of time is, are we going to be able to do that? So those were, that was my number one concern. It's how do we take care of the people who are taking care of the people? So you said you weren't concerned about protecting your, your uh, soldiers from the virus, but that seems like that, uh, were you doing testing uh, of your soldiers? Uh, How did you know because the virus is such a, it's such a tricky virus that we're dealing with where you have, where we have a lot of situations where people are asymptomatic. How did you know, how, how did you feel comfortable that your soldiers weren't getting sick themselves? So when, when I said I wasn't concerned about, when, I, when I'm, what I, what I said is I'm, when I'm not concerned about protecting them from the virus, I'm not concerned with them having the, the functional materials on hand like do we you know sure. do we have masks and do they have the discipline to wear their masks appropriately i i was very confident in in their ability to stay safe uh, from the virus while they were treating patients because we had a very deliberate uh donning and doffing protocol uh for them to follow so it, everything was overseen step by step to don your PPE and doff your PPE when you were entering and exiting the floor. So, uh, for example, if I went in, if I were going to walk on the floor, I, I approached an entryway that was maintained by people dedicated to a, to a station to get me in my PPE properly. So they would sanitize my hands. They would instruct me to, you know, put on my gloves. They would sanitize my hands over my gloves again. They would instruct me to put on a mask. You know, they would sanitize my hands. Again. You know what I mean? Uh, so they would they would walk us through the entire process of, of donning gloves and masks and eye protection and gowns uh, before we even entered the facility. Um, so once we were in the facility, then you could you could move about and treat patients. Um, I never treated a patient again. I'm not a provider. Uh, for our, our our providers and nurses, they would go in and they would treat patients. But then when it came time to leave the floor, they would go through that reverse process again with a single dedicated individual to a person walking them step by step uh, on how to get out of their PPE safely without infecting themselves. Wow. It was very deliberate. At what point was the, at what point were you told, okay, um, uh, we no longer require the your, your unit services. 
uh, prepare to redeploy? And, and what was that process like once you got that notification? So once we, once we saw the peak census and we started seeing it roll off, uh, and then we started seeing the, uh, the census and local, uh, and local hospitals start to roll off as well, uh, we knew at that point the decision was going to start coming uh, for us to redeploy uh, part uh, or all of our force. Um, or would we have to uh, redistribute them elsewhere? Um, or would we actually get ready to go to, say, some other location in the U.S.? Uh, those are all things we didn't know. So as we started kind of uh, uh, drawing down from, from the Javits Center itself, we started preparing for a follow-on deployment to another unknown location. So there was a possibility that you weren't going to go back to Fort Hood and 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 back into kind of uh, uh, prepare mode. You were you were potentially going somewhere else. We didn't know. Uh, so all we knew is that we were. That's all we knew is that we were uh, we were drawing down from the Javits Center. Um, but like I said, all right, where could we end up next? So okay. kind of kind of stay frosty and uh, and get ready to go somewhere <laughs> else in the world. Okay, because at that point um, we didn't know if there'd be another a large outbreak someplace else. I mean, there was looking looking back now, we it probably feels like we knew more than we actually did at the moment. At hindsight, right? <laughs> You're, right, so, right. right? It's always hindsight, we can look back. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, we totally could have known. Uh, but no, of course not. There's no, <laughs> we knew. We, there's no way we knew uh, what the kind of the, the battlefield was going to shape up to look like. So eventually you did. Uh, so I guess the census continued to drop. At what point um, were you told, okay, you know, you're actually, you're going to go back to Fort Hood. I, I assume you did. That was the next step. You, you went back to Fort Hood or did you actually go somewhere else first? No, we, we came back to Fort Hood. So um, we discharged the uh, the last patient, patient 1,095, um, out of the Javits Center on, on May 1st. So it was after that point um, we started we started getting ready to uh, to go someplace else or, like I said, or or potentially go back to Fort Hood. We didn't know. Uh, I want to say it was about maybe maybe about a week or so after that. Um, I don't remember exactly the date that we got noticed that we would be coming back to Fort Hood. But at that point, we started uh, preparing to redeploy uh, by testing our folks and putting them in quarantine and uh, making sure that um, they were good to go, getting all their flights you know, ready and getting those folks set up to come back home. Then tearing down all of our equipment, and sanitizing all of our equipment and getting it all boxed up and inspected and, and then getting all that ready to come home safely as well. And so one of the things... Uh, is a, a great lesson that I know uh, that we learn uh, speaking, you know, now me speaking as a former military person, you know, one of the things we, we learn right away uh, in our leadership training is that uh, is the art of doing an after action review or the, the need to do an after action review or what we call an AAR. And this is a strength, I think you know, uh, uh, of the military uh, uh, that we learn from the, thing that from exercises like this. So I'm curious, I'm sure you had some sort of AAR process after this was over. What lessons did you learn as a unit from the deployment? 
And what would the unit do differently if you were presented with a similar situation in the future? And what did it do well? So the you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it, it's critical to capture lessons learned when they're fresh in your head. Um, and then, and then think about how you're going to, uh, actually exercise those lessons in the future. So they're, they're, I, I think the, the phrase we like to use is, uh, lessons learned, not lessons observed. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> so, uh, the, the biggest, you know, we, we, you know, we talk, uh, we talk often about, about being flexible and, and maintaining flexibility and execution. We actually, and, and the military is actually really good at that. You know, I, I think people have a, have an idea that, uh, things in the military are very rigid. Um, and that's true to, to a certain extent, but, um, the folks in the military are very adaptable. And that's actually the biggest thing that we got to see in execution here. The difference here was the flexibility and execution with folks who don't wear our uniform. And who aren't, um, you know, kind of embedded in our, you know, hierarchy and in, in our culture, um, in our cultural hierarchy. Um, so the biggest thing is that I noticed was how do you, how do you get in where you fit in uh, with people that you're not used to working for, or people, and those people are not used to working with folks like you. That was the biggest lesson learned out of here. Is is how do you how do you do that yourself? And then how do you foster an environment that lets other people do that as well? That's the biggest lesson okay. that I can this. Can you give a specific example of, of how that went well or, um, and, you know, and what you might, you know, uh, what other organizations might learn from your experience? Absolutely. One, some of the biggest things I saw were, were allow people to function outside of their quote traditional or maybe maybe uh, predetermined role um, if they have a certain skill set to bring to bear so it if you have a person who is in in function x but they have a skill that can really be used somewhere completely outside of their lane well you know what maybe that's the place for them in this operation uh, maybe you find that other thing that they're good at and, or you let them find it for you and let them bring it to the table and, and say, Hey boss, you know, I, I've got, I've got the ability to do this thing and I see a need for it over there. Do you mind? No, absolutely. Go do it. And that's, that's the biggest thing is, is you have to be able to, uh, kind of hold on loose, you know, let those, let those folks go out and, and, and let them run. So you made it back. Uh, you brought all your folks back. You're all back now, or are people still deployed individually? Or, or? so we ended up uh, we ended up deploying. Also, um, if you remember back to us uh, in, in the beginning of this conversation, the Ninth Hospital Center has some other subordinate organizations. Um, one of those is a behavioral health detachment. They deployed as well uh, in support of this operation, and they were out there working. Uh, with our folks to make sure everybody was doing well. And they were also out there nested in the hospitals uh, because remember, like I said, there was uh, the, the sister field hospital was uh, uh, operating mission command over folks who were working in local hospitals. So our behavioral health folks were out there working with those folks in those hospitals as well to making sure 
uh, making sure everybody was uh, kind of staying sound of mind. And those folks are getting ready to come back here in the next day or two. Wow. Uh, the the 44th, uh, the task force uh, commander still has some folks up there as well. Uh, so I know they're still operating, but I know that operation is uh, slowly starting to collapse. Uh, well, I guess I should say, I don't want to say collapse. I'm going to say it's slowly starting <laughs> to, <laughs> slowly starting to be uh, drawn down uh, and, and moved out of it. Okay. Um, Great. Well, I know what an amazing experience that must have been uh, to be there and support such a, a difficult time in, in uh, really in our nation's history. It's kind of an amazing opportunity. Um, and we're lucky that you are, you and your unit were able to be there. You know, it was, uh, it, it was hopefully a, a once in a lifetime event. Uh, and what I, what I mean by that is hopefully, you know, we never have to see anything like that again, but, but wow, did you get to see the humanity? It, it's amazing what happens when, uh, when, so many different people come together and, and work towards a, a, a common goal uh, that has has such an a, such an importance. You know, it has such a, a huge impact. Uh, you know, not just on on your organization, but on 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 the on the community. So it was it was inspiring. It was really inspiring to be part of it. Well, um, so I want to I want to shift gears a little bit because normally in this in this uh, in in my podcast I usually start with career stories first and then we talk about current uh, your current assignment. But I wanted to start with the your kind of your current assignment first because it's so fascinating and timely. But I do want to talk a little bit about your career. So you mentioned um, you know you mentioned you're not a provider. So I'd like to explore a little bit about you know how how you came to be the commander. Of a of a field hospital, and was looking at your I was looking at your your CV, and it looks like you've got a couple of different phases to your career, and I uh, thought maybe we'd run through through that with you. It looks like you so it looks to me like you started your career in the military as a combat engineer. Is that correct? That that is correct. I, I started out as okay. a yeah as a as an airborne combat engineer on. Uh, in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, um, in the Army's Rough Terrain uh, Parachute Company. Wow! What <laughs> drew you into the Army, and why? Why engineer? <laughs> so, my uh, uh, my my grandmother uh, drew me into the Army. Um, I wasn't supposed to be in the Army. Uh, I was, yeah, I was, yeah. Uh, I was supposed to be a rock star. Didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was uh, I was actually working graveyards in a in a in a truck stop, um, you know, a couple blocks from the house uh, in New Mexico. And I remember I came home from work one morning, and and I was living with my grandma. And I walked through the front door, and it's just, it's it's really small house. So you 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 walk through the front door, and you're in the living room, and then you can see right there to 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 the table, to the breakfast table, and. And I opened the door and I, and I stepped inside. My my grandma was sitting at the table with the you know, with the recruiter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I I took the hint and <laughs> I was like, so I guess I'm I guess I'm taking the ASVAB today. And 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 okay. the, yeah. And so the the rest is history. Uh, took the uh, took the ASVAB. Um, and I was at the. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was at the uh, the entrance processing station. Um, and they were just kind of showing me the, 
you know, the, 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 the videos of, of all the different jobs. And, and of course, you know, I'm a, I'm a young guy and, and they showed me a video of a, of a guy running around in the woods and blowing things up and, you know, doing all the cool stuff. And, and man, I was sold. So, yeah. <laughs> so he's like, you want to be all an right. engineer? I'm like, heck yeah, it sounds great. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's all the, uh, it's all the funny stories, you know, that you think about when you, when you hear about somebody enlisting in the army, you know, I was like getting ready to sign the paper and one of the one of the recruiters comes or the career people uh, career counselors i think they were called comes running around the corner yelling at me he's like stop stop um so i kind of looked at him and, and then he puts his hand on my shoulder and he's like do you want to go airborne and i'm like what does that mean <laughs> and he's like he's like so you get to jump out of airplanes and blow things up heck yeah sign me up <laughs> so but that, that's what that's what started uh phase one for sure that's it's all all right what kind of luck so was it uh uh so was it everything it was uh, was it everything the advertising made it out to be it was it was uh it was a really great job it it, it you know it, it opens it opens a, a young man's eyes a little more to the world uh, definitely instills a sense of discipline that you may have been lacking before, for sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was. I had a really, really good time. Uh, a lot of fond memories uh, from that from that first part of my life, first part of my army life. Anyway. And then now it now you you didn't stay engineer. You actually transitioned to be a lab technician. I did. So I. It's it's kind of like. It's kind of like the situation um, with my with my grandma. You know, I've I've, I've been really lucky. I've, uh, I've 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 had a bunch of people in my life take care of me. Um, I don't know if I'm in, inherently lazy or something. They just <laughs> I need a lot of nudges. So I was uh, you know I was gonna get out of the army and and go back home, and ended up uh, having a talking to uh, by a by an NCO a, a sergeant. Uh, who wasn't even in my squad. He was in the next, uh, he was in the next platoon up. He was in first platoon. Um, and, I, and I remember his name, his name was Joe Queen. And he came in one day and we were sitting in the company area and I was getting out of the army. I was less than 90 days out. And, and he was like, Oh, so what are you going to do? And, you know, I told him I was getting out and going to college. And so he asked what, you know, what college I was going to. And, you know, I told him I hadn't signed up yet. And then he asked me if I had taken the ACT or SAT yet. And, my answer was, you know, no. <laughs> and so I, I remember him, he just looked at me and he was like, well, you know, good luck with that. And then he got up and he walked away. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, I, so I took that hint uh, and I walked down the, I, I got up and I walked down the sidewalk to the, to the retention NCO, the reenlistment uh, sergeant and, and told him, okay, I'll, I'll reenlist if you, if you, if you get me a good school. Um, and he got me, he got me the lab tech course. And so I, I reenlisted to become a lab tech. Well, so why was that a good school? So it, uh, what were you thinking? So it, it gave, uh, at the time, I don't know if it still is, but at the time it was affiliated with George Washington University. Uh, so you were, you were able to go to this, uh, it was a year-long training. So you're, you're able to go to this year-long training and, and come out of it with 60 semester hours from George Washington University. Uh, so it was a it was a huge jump start to to my academic career. Uh, so that that's that's what was really appealing to me uh, at that point. I was like, okay, if 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 I'm too 
if, if I'm not on the ball to sign up for college on my own, like, like Sergeant Queen pointed out, then you know what, this is, this is a great stepping stone that, that moves me in that direction that I was, I was intending to go. That's what drew me to it. Okay. All right. At what point did you, 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 you eventually got a commission and became a medical service corps officer. How did that come about? So you were, you were there, you had done your, I assume you'd finished your training. Um, what was the next step there? How did you, how did you earn your commission? Um, it, it took another nudge. It, it really did. It, it took another nudge. Um, I was in the middle of, of my, my commitment from that reclassification to, to lab tech. And I had a, actually had a civilian supervisor at the time. And uh, he brought a flyer to me one day. Um, and the, the flyer was advertising a program called the Green to Gold program. Uh, and that's a, that's a program in the Army where you, uh, you essentially get out. At the time, you actually got discharged from the Army. Uh, that's changed. You, that doesn't happen anymore. But you get discharged from the Army and you go to college full time and uh, you go to you go through an R- uh, reserve officer training corps program. Uh, and then when you're done, you get your commission. Uh, so she brought me the flyer advertising well, what's called the commanding general's hip pocket scholarship program for green to gold. And she was like, hey, have you heard of this? And I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And. You know, I, I really wasn't, I, I really wasn't interested. I, I was, I was kind of set on, you know, I'm, I'm getting out of the army again. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's time to go. Uh, a couple months later, she brought the flyer to me again. Um, and was like, Hey, I couldn't remember if I talked to you about this. Um, you know, have you, have you seen this? Um, and, and so, so I went home and I, and I thought, I thought about it and I said, you know, why, why not? But at that, at that point I had, um, there was only about a week left uh, to the application deadline. So in that week I had to get accepted to a, a college. Um, I had to get all the medical uh, evaluations done. Uh, I had to get letters of recommendation, you know, written. Um, so, so I was hustling, <laughs> I was hustling for a week, uh, put in my application and, and ended up getting selected uh, for, for a commander's hip pocket scholarship. And then ended up going to going to college and, and and got my commission into the medical service corps out of there. Now, did you you had you had both engineering background as well as healthcare background at that point? Did you ask for medical service corps, or did you just was that just luck? No, I that was my first choice. Okay, yeah. what so, was it that made you decide you wanted to do that? So having having worked in 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 kind of the medical area then at the, at that point. Um, I started developing a passion for it. Uh, I was, I, I didn't, I knew I, I knew I wasn't going to be a, a provider. I, I was never moving down that, that path. Uh, but for healthcare leadership, it, it was really starting to appeal to me. So about, I think you're about a year out from, from graduating from college when you have to kind of pick the core that, that you, that you want to go into. You, you had to, at that time you had to rank order, uh, I think it was 16, uh, the 16 cores, you had to rank them from, from first to last. Um, and then you had to put a combat arms somewhere in the top three. Uh, so I chose medical service corps. I, I think I chose engineering second. Uh, and then I don't remember the list from, from there on down. But yeah, so I, 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 I got my first choice, got what I wanted, uh, and, and became a medical service corps officer. Okay. So you, you're kind of, First five years in the, as an officer, you did some platoon leader time, you had company command, kind of the, the usual stuff. 
you, how much enlisted time did you have? I had just under, uh, just under six years is like five, let's say five and a half or so. Okay. So I'm looking you know, so again, looking at your, looking at your career, um, uh, doing some of the things the early, early careers do. So you would have had five years enlisted five years, you know, let's say five years through your company command, you know, you're pushing 10 years. That's usually kind of a decision point. At what point did you decide for, for folks to stay, you know, stay in the military or, or, you know, call it a day? At what point did you decide that you want, you were going to make the military a career, meaning to go 20 years or more? So once I, once I got my commission and, and, and I started, I started seeing, you know, the potential and the rewards really from, from that, from operating on that side of the house. When I say rewards, what I mean is is the reward of actually getting to to work with work with people and lead people, and then and then the potential of shaping policy. Uh, when I started seeing that, I was um, in my head, I was like, yeah, this is this is for me. This is this is what I want to do. Uh, so that's that's what really kind of kind of cemented it. I was yeah, kind of think what we were talking about earlier is, is get in get in where you fit in, um, and I and I felt I felt like I was fitting. I felt like this is this is something that that I want to do. I feel like I have something to to bring, um, and I love being on the team. You know, I really I really enjoy being on this team, and and it, it feels good to to put on the uniform every day and 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 walk into this environment. You know, wherever it is. So I I, I knew then I was like it just it feels right. So you had, you've had this kind of, uh, your early career, you kind of had this, and, and so it seems sort of throughout your career, you've kind of done the kind of back and forth between, you know, uh, uh, field units where you're going out and like you said, blowing things up and running around the woods to um, being in a, you know, being in a hospital as a, as a lab tech, I assume you, you know, working in a clinic of some sort, getting your commission and spending time with the infantry. And then, and then being in a, it was a, a training command, I assume, uh, that you had. It was. Yeah. It was a, so, yeah. So an, an, an interesting kind of back, back and forth. How did you wind up moving, getting your first exposure to financial management? So you wind up at Tripler. How did that happen that you wind up doing that work? <laughs> so um, I guess this is becoming a theme. Much like in my life, it took a nudge. It it, it really took uh, somebody sitting down. I didn't want to do finance. Um, it, it took it took somebody sitting me down and explaining to me what it meant. Um, so I had the I had the vision in my head of of oh the the you know the finance person is the is the person who wears you know the green eye shade and you know sits there right. you know, with a with a calculator that has a long you know paper ribbon running out the back of it and. I was like, yeah, that's that's not for me. I don't want to spend the rest of my my time in the army, you know, balancing somebody else's checkbook. It's just just not what I want to do. Um, and and my boss at the time, uh, I was I was a battalion operations guy, and my boss, the executive officer for the battalion, was a guy named uh, Colonel Scott Cooper. He he pulled me aside and and was like, oh, you have it so wrong. Uh, let me you know let me let me talk to you about what it really means to to be a healthcare CFO. And, and he, he really, he opened my eyes to it a lot and he actually ended up getting me into my internship and then I just got really fortunate and I did my internship at, at Tripler in Hawaii, which was amazing. Okay. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I had, I I was in the same office once upon a time. So, uh, yeah. So, so you, you did this intern, what we call an internship and, and that kind of bring, brought you into the healthcare finance uh, specialty, subspecialty within the medical service corps. You went on to do uh, CFO, you know, chief financial officer and business operations for three different organizations. The last being very one of the army's larger uh, uh, medical centers, Womack Army Medical Center at Fort Bragg. So back back to Fort Bragg again um, <laughs> for you. That's a theme too. Um, so what's it like? So so you've had this great experience. Um, you know, well, I'm I'm feeding that one in because. You know, I was also, I was the same as you back in my army career. So what do you, what was it uh, about being a comptroller, about being a CFO, doing this kind of work that you really liked? What was it that, you know, that uh, sold you on the field? My, my, I had a really good experience uh, in my first, in my first account. So when I came out of, when I came out of my, my internship at Tripler, uh, as, as you know, you get your first you get your first standalone account, uh, hopefully. Uh, and and I got picked up to to go to uh, uh, Bavaria Medac Bavaria Medical Activity in Germany. And I saw in in that position, I saw the potential of the office of the CFO to really help shape military medicine. So so again, it's it's. It's always about it's always about the people you end up working with, and there I ended up with two fantastic uh, deputy commanders for administration, which is uh, uh, for for folks listening, that's the kind of the COO of of the hospital, um, and then the the hospital commander, the the CEO. They they really used the the office of the CFO as an integrator. So there was a, a the first. Uh, the first COO, the first uh, deputy commander for administration, the DCA there, uh, was a guy. Uh, now his name is uh, Colonel uh, Tom Bunt, followed by a guy named uh, Colonel Scott Stoko. Um, those were my two immediate bosses there, and they really used that office of the CFO as an integrator. Um, it was somebody, as opposed to just dealing with you know certain aspects of of healthcare and healthcare finance, uh, they used that position as as what it is. It's something that touches every other piece of the organization. So it really opened my eyes to the possibilities uh, and the, the capability of that office to shape military medicine moving forward. And then all of those guys were enabled by uh, the, the commander of the hospital, um, Colonel uh, Rob Goodman, uh, who really helped, you know, kind of shape that whole, that whole organization. And, and I tell you, that team did some wonderful things. That's what that's what really solidified it for me. That's what that's what really made me love being uh, being a healthcare CFO. You've had this kind of really interesting career where you started out as a you know again as an engineer, and then you became a lab tech, and then you did platoon leader time with the infantry, and and then you did some you know you you did all this great finance stuff. How does that lead you to be? now uh, as the commander of a, of a field hospital? I mean, how does that all lead to where you are now? Um, well, well, first, I don't, I don't want people to get confused. I was never an infantry platoon leader. Um, I was, uh, Sorry. 
Did I say uh, that? No, I'm, no. A, a, I'm a medical platoon leader supporting uh, the infantry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so they have uh, an infantry battalion has a, a medical platoon, and and then I was I was the uh, medical platoon leader for that. Um, had, had a wonderful group of people there as well. Uh, that's another thing that helped shape it. Again, I mean, just you, you get to work with these amazing folks to let you see, wow, this is what I want to do. The how did I become a hospital commander? Um, so I I ended up uh, you know applying for command, and I came out on uh, you either you either get selected as a as a primary to to be a, a commander, or you get um, a, an alternate slot, or you get uh, you, you get non-select. Um, so I was actually fortunate enough to get selected, but I was selected as an alternate. So the the interesting thing about it is is you, you know as you know when it when you come time, uh, when you start getting close to to what you think should be your retirement time, um, you start having very difficult conversations, you know, with with the people you love. So I was I was talking with my uh, with my wife about it, and and I actually decided to retire. And I was like, okay, you know what? It's 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 been it's been more than 20 years. Uh, it's 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 been a great time. I, you know, the army's been very good to me at this point. I really enjoyed it, but you know what? It's probably time to go. So so we had decided to retire, and I had asked the uh, uh, what our personnelists, the S1, uh, to to send me my retirement packet to go ahead and get started on it. And it hit my it hit my inbox. And then two days later, my phone rings and my, my wife at the time, she was living in Savannah. I moved a lot. Uh, so my wife was living in Savannah. I was living in North Carolina uh, and she was up visiting me. But anyway, my phone rings at about 10 o'clock in the morning and it was the, uh, the CG, the commanding general down here at Fort Hood. And he's like, hey, you know, you know, Lieutenant Colonel McGee, congratulations. You're going to come command the 11th Field Hospital at Fort Hood. <laughs> and at this point in my head, I've, I've got a retirement packet to fill out in my inbox. Um, I've already had the difficult conversation, you know, with, uh, you know, with, with my wife to decide uh, that it's time to go and that we're going to get out. And uh, so we, I, I talked to the general for, you know, about 20 minutes or so and then hung up and I was like, oh, Hey, honey, <laughs> we need to talk. Um, and so, so we actually, we spoke about it for quite a while. Um, took a, because I almost declined it. Um, cause we had already, we had already made the decision, um, to, to retire, but decided to go ahead and take the opportunity. And, and I gotta, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm really glad that I did. Um, it, this has been one of the most rewarding and fulfilling jobs I could ever think about. That's how I ended up being a hospital commander. I, I was fortunate enough to get selected, and I've had some I've had some fantastic support, you know, around me uh, to have really enable me to 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 take this job. So let me uh, let me ask you to talk for a minute, kind of in general, about how the army works with those kinds of jobs. Like you mentioned a couple of times as you were telling the story about your deployment to the Javits uh, Center, uh, that you weren't a provider. So you're you're a you're a finance guy. Um, you have some lab experience. So maybe you go and play in the lab every now and then, I don't know, just to, to, to mess with them. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) You're not allowed. Okay. So, um, but you know, uh, uh, why, um, how does the army decide who to put in charge of a hospital? So there's uh, a centralized uh, board selection process. Um, so you, you apply, you kind of throw your name in the hat, 
and say, yes, I would, I would really like to compete uh, for command. Um, and then at that point, they, meaning the board, remotely goes, goes through your entire record from, from front to back to determine if you are a good fit, somebody that they would want to place in, in a, in a, in a command position. And then you, you get, you get rank ordered in there. Um, so you get, you get picked to pick command. What are they looking for? It's obviously not that you're a provider, right? So this is a hospital, you're in charge of a hospital, but you're not a provider. So, I mean, like, obviously it wasn't the most important thing that you could actually treat patients. Right. They're, they're looking, they're looking for your leadership potential. They want to see if you have the ability um, or the potential, right, to, to move into an organization and, and take charge of it and foster a positive cultural environment and lead that organization forward. That's, that's really what they're looking for. They're looking for the best person to fill that role. Well, congratulations on, on that and, and getting, getting that role. And it sounds like you're doing, you've had some really amazing experiences. I'd like to close on a little discussion about leadership since uh, we we're just talking about that. So, what would you say uh, is your leadership philosophy? When I was putting together my my intro brief for for this command, uh, you you want to put together you know a, a hey this is who I am and this is this is my view of the world uh, when you when you come into an organization just kind of give them a give them that heads up you know this is this is the kind of person that at least I see myself as um, and and my when I focus in on like, what, what do I really think my leadership philosophy is? Um, it's, you know, prov- it, I want to be the kind of person who provides intent and in state, and then just, just let the ponies run, let, let people surprise you with what they, with what they bring to the table. I, and, and I smile, I smile when I think about it because in my, in my head, what I picture is I have an old photo of, of my dad teaching me how to ride a bike. And, and it's, it's the, it's that picture where, you know, the, the kids on, you know, wobbling on the bike and the, the dad is behind me and, and his hand is out. Like he just let go of the seat, you know? So, so in my mind, I don't even know if he's there, but he provided, he provided intent and in state, Hey, I want you to be able to ride the bike and I don't want you to wreck it. And, and I want you to, you know, ride it that way. Um, but he was there, you know, behind, you know, you know, kind of uh, providing stability oversight, uh, providing some top cover, you know, some, some safety and security. Uh, and then, and then you just, you know, let me go. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I try. Um, I, I, albeit unsuccessfully, I'm sure, uh, more often than not, uh, that's how I try to, to run an organization is, Hey, here's, here's the intent. Here's the end state. I'll protect you, uh, as much as I can. Um, but get out there and run, you know, I'll, I'll watch over it and, and make sure things are going the direction I want, but, but be free, be free and run. That's cool. That's a, it's a nice, uh, that's a nice metaphor too. Um, uh, so what do you look for uh, when you are evaluating leaders? I look for like, like if I'm, if I'm evaluating somebody to come into an organization and be a leader, or if I'm evaluating them on the performance of their job, uh, first thing, if I'm bringing somebody in, I'm not necessarily looking for you know the the best person. I'm looking for the right person. 
I want to bring somebody into the organization who will nest with our team. I want to, I want to work with people who aren't here to push their own agendas. Um, I want to work with people who are free to offer and accept assistance. Um, those are the, those are the kind of folks that I like to bring on board. Now, when I'm evaluating them, all right, how, how well are these people using their attributes to kind of foster that in the people that they are leading? You know, are my subordinate leaders nurturing those whom they have ultimate responsibility for? Um, and then from the technical side of it, okay, are you using those capabilities to their fullest, fullest extent to, to be successful? Are you achieving the results that, that we expect of you? Um, so are you doing it? Are you getting, are you getting done what needs to get done? Um, and are you doing it well in a positive environment? A question I like to ask uh, successful leaders is, uh, can you give me an example of a, of a difficult leadership lesson that you had to learn the hard way? <laughs> so we know you're successful. You've done a great job. You've gotten to where you are. But is there something along the way that you had to learn kind of uh, by making a mistake? How much time do you have? <laughs> I have all of the mistakes. Uh, the the um, one of the the biggest things that I reflect on often um, is is number one. Uh, I can never pretend like I I can never pretend like I know everything. Um, I, I I think I've I think I've said it a lot. Um, I've been really really fortunate to. Um, stand on the shoulders of, of some really, really good people. Um, I've been fortunate to have a lot of support from other folks. So the first, the first lesson is I, I do not know everything and there's no way that I could ever know. And, and I think the, the, one of the biggest lessons that I reflect on often it, as, a, as a young officer, um, especially like in my company command, I feel, yeah, I was, I was successful, you know, it was a successful command, what, you know, however you want to define success, but I don't feel like I was, I, I feel, I feel like I missed a lot of opportunities as a, as a young officer, because I didn't, I didn't nurture the way that I really try to nurture. So when I came out of company command, I, you know, I was reflecting on, on the, the last two years and I was like, you know, I spent two years in command and I could have done things a lot differently, could have been better. And, and I think, I think the biggest mistake to get to the, to the question of, of what, what mistake did you make? The, the mistake was empowering. I failed to empower to the level that I should have. I, I had, you know, I, I felt like I needed to have way more control over what was going on around me than I really did. So the biggest failure was I should have just provided a little more, you know, intent and state and oversight. And then, and then, and again, you know, let the ponies run. So I should have done. And I, and I don't think that I did, uh, definitely not to the extent that I could have. So it sounds like you've taken that to heart since it was an important part of your, of your new, your leadership philosophy now. I, I hope so. I, I hope I, I hope I am. I hope it's a lesson learned and not a lesson observed. You mentioned a number of folks along the way that that gave you nudges. 
So I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on mentorship and what is it, what does a good mentor do and how does that fit in with your thoughts on leadership? So I think a, a good a good mentor is somebody who not just nurtures uh, the positive attributes in you, but I think a good mentor is, is somebody who can identify your shortcomings. And then, uh, you know, we, we have to talk about nudging. Uh, there's somebody who can alert you to your shortcomings and, and maybe help push you in, in that right direction. Maybe, maybe it's, a, it's a certain skill that you require uh, that you're not comfortable with exercise. Uh, so maybe a, you know, a, good, a good mentor, maybe that's somebody who can help push you, you know, into that uncomfortable situation while providing some oversight, you know, providing some safety and security for you um, and, and let you let you swim a little bit to develop those skills that you need to you need to shore up a little. I think that's something that a good mentor does. There's somebody that helps helps you see yourself and then helps you become uh, a little better uh, to, you know, to think about it a little better tomorrow than you are today. I don't want to uh, end the conversation without uh, uh, talking a little bit about your role with ACHE, with the American College of Healthcare Executives. So you are the Army Regent for uh, the American College of Healthcare Executives. What is that and why is it important? So yes, I am. Uh, I am the regent for ACHE. Um, I, I want to be very cautious. Uh, I can't, uh, I need to make sure that I'm not endorsing a specific organization. <laughs> there's certain, uh, there's certain uh, army ethics rules that I need to uh, stay on the right side of. Um, but I am, I am the regent for, for the American College of Healthcare Executives for, for, uh, for the Army. Mm-hmm. Why do I think it's important? Um, number, number one, I think professional, being a member of a professional organization, um, whether you're in uniform or out of uniform, is, is uh, for, number one, developing the network. But the biggest thing that comes from the network is being exposed to people with points of view that are different than your own. Um, so you can find a lot of people share similar problem sets, you know, in life, they face, they face different, they face similar challenges, uh, maybe in different locations, but similar challenges. So getting exposed to people who kind of tackle those problems, you know, solve those problems, um, in different ways, uh, I think it's invaluable. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest things that comes from being a member of a professional organization. You know, it's about, it's about being a master of your craft. It's, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't become, you know, better at what I do if I stay in my bubble. I need to get out there and I need to, I need to talk to, to other folks who, who are in a similar field. Heck, I need to talk to people who don't even do what I do just so I can kind of expand my horizon a little bit. Is that important for, so let me, let me set aside, to be fair, let me set aside ACHE specifically and just professional, let's talk professional organizations in general. How important is that for early careers? So I'm, now I'm thinking about my own students who are young folks getting ready to enter the career, enter their careers. How important is that for people at an early career stage to get involved with um, organizations like the like like ACHE, but you could throw in MGMA, HFMA, there's a whole laundry list of 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 great organizations out there. I think as as an early careerist, somebody just starting out, getting involved with those professional organizations 
the biggest takeaway from that is you are going, whether you want to or not, you are going to find some people to mentor you. You're going to get exposed to people who are more than willing to help you out. Even if you're not looking, somebody's going to find you. And, and somebody is going to offer their, that's just, that's what comes from professional organizations. And most of the time, the people who are going to find you and offer you assistance are the same people who required assistance when they were at, at, when they were at your point, you know, when they were just starting out, they can see things that you need that you may not know you need yet. Um, and that's, that's why it's important. You can, you can get so far ahead of the game and learn so much before you're faced with something that you don't have a clue how to handle. That's, that's the biggest thing that you're going to get at that early career stage. Then to take it a step forward, when you're moving on in your career, you now have somebody that you can call when you need help because you're going to need help at some point. Um, you have, you now have somebody that you can leverage. To, to help you through a difficult time. That, you know, I can I can actually tie this back a little bit to um to to the operation at, at Javits in New York. When we got the the first notice that we could potentially deploy in support of COVID operations somewhere in the US, the first thing I did, you know, outside from getting the unit ready, uh, you know, one of the first things I did was I picked up the phone. Well, I picked up the email. Um, I, you know, I picked up the phone and I called, I called the, the ACHE network. Um, that's again, that just happens to be the organization that I'm closest to. I, I picked up the phone and I, and I called everybody. I, I called this, I shot an email out to the CEO, to all the other military regions, the regional coordinators. I was like, Hey, we may go somewhere. I might need some help. And within know, five, 10 minutes. Uh, I started getting email replies, um, and then next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call, and I got connected with uh, one of the CEOs at one of the local hospitals in New York, and then I'm on the phone with him, starting to develop medical intelligence estimates uh, to get an idea of what's going to go on on the ground. Those are the kind of things those professional organizations and those networks do for you. You know, some of those conversations were helping drive, you know, early, you know, capabilities decision making. Uh, at least part of the planning process, the, you can't get that from from Google. You you can't get it from a you can't get it just from a textbook. You you have to get that that type of stuff. You have can only be uh, brought from relationships, and that's what you get out of a professional organization. So, uh, last question for a young person thinking about a career in health: Why should they think about a career in military medicine? So I can't think of a better way uh, to learn that level of, of teamwork uh, and leadership than in, that, than in the military. And there's, there's a reason I say that. I'm not saying you can't learn teamwork and leadership outside of the military, but you learn it in a different way when you're, when you're wearing a uniform. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're working in a fixed facility, um, like a, like a brick and mortar hospital, or if you're, you're doing medicine out of the back of a vehicle, you know, what we call tailgate medicine. If you're leading tailgate medicine as a platoon lady, the level of leadership that you learn, uh, in uniform is ultimate responsibility. 
um, it, when you're in uniform, you not only have responsibility for for everything that your organization does or fails to do, you have ultimate responsibility for the the care and well-being around the clock of the people with whom you serve. I just I can't think of another place that that gets you that deep into somebody's life with that level of responsibility aside from being a parent. Colonel McGee, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to catch up. And I and I forgot, you know, you kind of threw a bone out there and I didn't jump on it. And that was uh you really were gonna be a rock star at one point, right? Was that the that was the plan <laughs> at the beginning? <laughs> I, I, I was not going to be, but but in my that head was the plan. Oh, and in my head <laughs> We're, you know, we were on our way. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Grandma had other ideas. Yeah, yeah. Fate, you know, life, you know, whatever you want to call it. Something jumped in and, and moved me in this direction. And uh, and, I'm, and I'm happy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with it. Maybe afterwards. Maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's the yeah. next life. It's not too late. Maybe that's the next phase, right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Good to see you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.